Gateway courses got their name because they're supposed to clear the path to fields of study. But for millions of students who struggle in those important classes, they often shut the door to those disciplines prematurely. Hello, and welcome to The Key, Inside Higher Ed's news and analysis podcast. I'm your host, Doug Letterman, editor and co-founder of Inside Higher Ed. Thanks for joining us today. Policymakers in the public are paying more attention than ever to higher education's inclusiveness, or lack thereof, of learners from underrepresented minority groups and low-income and first-generation backgrounds. A lot of that attention focuses on the recruitment and financial aid policies that determine whether those students make their way into college. But just as important are the academic and environmental factors that determine whether they thrive once they're enrolled. Today's episode of The Key digs into efforts to develop courseware for 20 high enrollment courses that can make or break whether students from all backgrounds persist and ultimately complete their educations. The goal of the initiative, funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, is to bring together colleges, companies, and research organizations to build digital courses that can be used on dozens, if not hundreds, of campuses to eliminate gaps in performance by students from different backgrounds. We're joined today by key leaders of two of the early projects spawned by this initiative. Ariel Anbar is a president's professor at Arizona State University, which is teaming up with Carnegie Mellon University and the publisher OpenStax to create a general chemistry course that is heavy on active learning and real-world problem-solving. Jeanette Koskinas is Chief Product Officer at Lumen Learning, which is developing an Introduction to Statistics course in close collaboration with students and instructors at institutions like Rockland Community College and Santa Ana College. In the conversation that follows, they discuss their goals for their projects, how they're integrating feedback from students and instructors into the development, and their early learnings and impediments. Before we begin the conversation, here's a word from the Gates Foundation, which is sponsoring today's episode. This episode of The Key is brought to you by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, working to ensure that race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status are no longer predictors of educational success. Learn more about the Foundation's work to improve digital teaching and learning, advance institutional transformation, and more at usprogram.gatesfoundation.org. Now on to today's discussion with Jeanette Koskinas and Ariel Anbar. Ariel and Jeanette, uh, welcome to The Key. I really appreciate your both being here today. Thanks. Excited to be here. Thanks. Likewise. I wondered if each of you could start by giving us a brief kind of high-level overview of the project you're working on as part of this courseware initiative. Jeanette, uh, maybe start with you. Sure. Uh, So at Lumen Learning, we're focused on the introductory statistics course, which we're delivering via a new learning platform called Lumen One. About uh, 1.5 million students take IntroStats every year. And because of this, we see a wide degree of variance in terms of preparedness for courses like this. Um, It may have been a long time since a student took a math course. They may be intimidated by the material. Um, Or they may be really excited to take the class and find out that they are underprepared and that that's a surprise for them. We know that these are called gateway courses, and sometimes that's because the gate can open or it can close in terms of, you know, the path for them moving forward for their chosen curriculum and their goals. So our focus is really to deliver features and functionality within the courseware and marry that with relevant examples and support within the content to help meet students where they are and kind of level the playing field for them. 
We're also working hard to provide instructors with the support they need to take actionable insight on what is happening within their classroom. So understanding individual student performance, class performance, giving them instructional guides to help to bring in more active learning into their teaching, and where appropriate to provide them with the professional development guidance that can help them create meaningful connections and a sense of belonging for students in their course. And we're hoping all of that leads to academic success for students in introductory statistics. Ariel, you want to uh, tell us about the ASU Carnegie Mellon project? Sure. So you're going to hear there's some very similar themes that I won't I won't repeat for the most part um, because we're both responding to the same solicitation from the Gates Foundation, but in different subject areas. So uh, general chemistry, as everybody knows, is one of those 20 gateway courses. It's kind of a killer course for a lot of students. We're specifically focused on that track of general chemistry that is for students who are majoring in sciences but are not chemistry majors. Right, which is that middle layer. Then in chemistry, in particular, it's the most widely taken chemistry, but it's also kind of a no man's land, right? Because it's not the chemistry for poets that has a lot of curricular freedom, but it's also not the chemistry for majors, where the, your primary job as a chemistry instructor is to prepare students to really think like chemists in a professional way. As with the, the physics project, the, you know, the fundamental goal of the foundation is to enhance equitable outcomes, uh, particularly working, to, you know, reaching out, particularly to students who arrive at the institution with a variety of challenges that that majority of students typically don't have or don't have in the same ways. Our focus of our project is to address that in two major ways that came out of a bunch of research that was done in the first year of the project. And that is to develop course resources that are very responsive to the learners in various ways, to their individualized needs. So that takes you down the path of personalized adaptive learning in part, but it also takes you down some other pathways as well in terms of how do you better connect students to faculty? How do you better get use courseware to engage faculty in the individualized needs of the students, because not everything can be done through automated systems. And then uh, in addition, alongside responsiveness is relevance, right? How do we make this subject matter, which generally is taught in ways that are very abstract and seem disconnected from the real world, how do we make that more relevant to the students so that they are, they're motivated and interested and see why they're doing this? And that is a challenge in all intro STEM. It's a particular challenge sometimes in Gen Chem because uh, Gen Chem is often taught by chemistry faculty who are into it, right? They're excited about the subject for its own sake. They want to bring the wonder and joy of chemistry to the students. But the typical student in that middle lane of chemistry, they're not there to be turned on to the wonder of chemistry. They're there because they want that health science degree. They want to be a doctor. They want to be a nurse, whatever it is, right? They want to go into industry. And if you aren't showing them in a really integrated way why this matters, then it's going to be hard for them to be motivated. And Gen Chem is a fire hose of, of content. Um, we could get into the different sciences and, and, and why they've evolved a little differently and how they're taught. But chemistry in particular, I think that general chemistry, that year one intro chemistry, it's a huge stack of material that for a bunch of structural reasons is very hard to trim down. And so finding ways to motivate the students, or not to motivate them really, the way to think about this is to find what their motivations are and tap into that. that that's a challenge. To set things up a little more, I wanted to ask both of you, and maybe start with you, Ariel, what it was about this project and this work that attracted you personally and your colleagues at Arizona State to participate in it. First of all, we were invited. Lumen was invited also, um, and and our our partners at Carnegie Mellon University's Open Learning Initiative were also invited. So you know, when the Gates Foundation says, "Hey, we would like you to apply to this grant program," you you ask yourself, "Does this align with what we want to do?" Equitable outcomes, technology and learning, sure. Motivation to apply was easy, right? Then the question is, what do we actually want to want to propose? So let me tell you just a little bit about the center I lead at ASU and a little bit about Open Learning Initiative and, and how the, that comes together. So 
So, so my center is Center for Education Through Exploration at ASU. We are all about, and we've spent 10 years doing this, you know, learning how to create digital learning experiences that are focused around simulations, virtual field trips, and other things like that, in order to, uh, to reach students where, they, where we hope they're motivated and get them more motivated. We're very much about teaching science as process. I mean, we're about content, but we're also about the sort of these meta skills, right? Um, how do you look at data and formulate hypotheses and test them and, and things like that and using technology to do that. And that over years led us down the path of, of getting into adaptive learning. You know, we partnered with SmartSparrow for a number of years because when what happened in 2020 to us, you know, our journey is that SmartSparrow was bought by Pearson, as you probably know, and a nice exit. But that left us in an interesting conundrum, our, our team. We had a lot of big projects. We have a big NASA project and, and others. And we uh, we needed a platform. We needed an adaptive platform. We ended up connecting with uh with Open Learning Initiative uh, with Norman Beer and his team. They had just embarked on uh, the path of building a new adaptive learning platform that would be open source, which is huge for us because in many of our projects, one of our challenges has been, you know, all one good, what you're doing is great, but oh, proprietary platform, for-profit company, this is a challenge to getting adoption. So, and nothing against for-profit companies, but there is a big space where that's a challenge. So we were already thinking about going in an open source direction. They were starting to build a platform. We said, great, we've got money from NASA. Let's go in with you together to make this platform do what we want to do. So we were starting in 2020 already going down this path with, with Norman's team at the Open Learning Initiative to co-develop what became the, the, the Taurus platform, the open source adaptive learning platform that's designed to be as low cost as possible and, and as flexible as, as we can make it. Um, so that we just, so when we were individually invited along with the InSpark network at ASU was also invited, which was a spinoff of Smart Sparrow that we'd put in, brought into ASU. All three of us were invited to compete. We said, well, this is silly. We're all using the same platform. We're all trying to advance it. Let's get together and, and, and do something jointly. OLI had a pre-existing body of chemistry courseware and some really good chemistry folks that we could evolve from. Uh, I'm a geochemist. My, you know, my undergraduate training is in chemistry and uh, geoscience together. So I've taught Gen Chem, so that is kind of a natural space for us to go into. And so that's that's really kind of how this how this came about. Jeanette, maybe talk a little bit about Lumen's arc. At Lumen, our mission is to enable unprecedented learning for all students. So this opportunity with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation grant has allowed us to really dial in tighter on that mission to explore how technology can support students, instructors, institutions to close the achievement gap and hopefully to eliminate race and income as predictors of success. It's allowed us to really center our work in equity. And we're doing that through listening to the lived experiences of marginalized students by finding ways to facilitate faculty-student connection and by building confidence and support that helps all students, particularly underprepared and underserved students, to be successful. Um, I think for us too, the statistics course itself, I mean, there's no shortage to the relevancy of statistics in our daily lives, right? Literacy and statistics is important for all of us. If we need it to better understand the news we consume, the politics we participate in, how companies make decisions, even how social media determines algorithms, right? It is all around us. So creating a course that could inspire and engage students in statistics and one that actually supports them through completion of that course felt like an exceptionally worthy cause um, these days. The Lumen project got out of the gate a little earlier, I think, than the ASU 
uh, Carnegie Mellon one. So uh, maybe start with you, Jeanette, on what you've seen so far, recognizing that these are remain early days in terms of what has what has worked well? What have been the biggest challenges and the biggest sort of uh, learnings that that have forced you, you know, back to the drawing board, or at least forced you to rethink things a little bit? Sure. Our introductory statistics course in the Lehman One platform is live today. We have customers using it. But last term, so the spring 2023 term, was our first time of putting students and instructors in in a pilot environment. We had about 12 institutions that participated with us, over 850 students, got a lot of great feedback, um, which I'll I'll highlight a couple important nuggets. But I'd love to go just a step further back in terms of some of the earliest work that we did to really make sure that the platform and the content and the delivery mechanisms itself were meeting our goals. And we did that primarily through establishing user testing centers. So we call them UTCs. If you hear me reference that, that's a user testing center. And our goal on those were were really to bring students to the table as Lumen co-designers. So we wanted their voice to be front and center in what we were developing from the onset. So the goal was not only to for us to gain from that experience and partnership, but also for students to be able to gain by getting exposure to and a better understanding of equity center design, user research, um, how to conduct interviews. So we partnered with two minority serving institutions, Santa Ana College in California and Rockland Community College in New York. Each institution had a college coordinator who helped us recruit and hire student interns. And those student interns worked with us directly. And we provided them with training in user testing and in research, but they were the ones who conducted our research cycles. So our research cycles were typically two to three weeks. They recruited and they interviewed their peers. And then in conjunction with us, they analyzed their data. Um, And this was just... I mean, first off, I think it was great to have students recruiting and interviewing other students. I'm confident we got more honest feedback than if students were sitting in a room with me talking to me about their experiences. We also were very cognizant of making sure that students were recruiting other students who had lived experiences, were first-generation students, might be students who you know were Pell Grant eligible. So we were really kind of building up that that foundation of knowledge from students who were in the population that we are working to serve the the hardest. They helped us on everything from just navigating the platform, like what made sense, what didn't, where were they getting stuck, where were they getting lost, um, through very specific feature development. One of the things in our introductory statistics course is because of that preparedness kind of gap that can happen for students for a variety of reasons, Each learning kind of module or lesson starts with an assessment of prerequisite skills. Like, do you have typically the math skills that you need in order to be able to really dive in and develop the expertise in the rest of this learning module that you'll need? And we had originally called that a knowledge check. Sounded good to us. Like, it's a knowledge check. Do you have the knowledge that you need to move on? And overwhelmingly students did not like that that naming convention. You know, we got a lot of feedback that 
first off, they weren't sure what that meant. Did that mean we were testing their knowledge on the content that was in the course, the, the learning module itself? It didn't, it didn't speak to them about kind of knowledge that they, they might need in order to do that lesson. Because it wasn't clear, it felt a little like a gotcha. Should I click on that or not? How valuable is this going to be? And especially for students who are trying to balance work and school, are trying to balance just acclimating to a higher ed environment, any sort of confusion that, that leads them to wonder whether they should or shouldn't do something is just lost time. It's just, it's just a waste of energy. And we also had students be very specific about if what we were trying to do was assess how ready they were for the material that was upcoming, then why don't you just call it what it is? It's a readiness check. And so that shift in language, right, away from implying these are skills that students should have, this is knowledge you should demonstrate, versus skills you'll need in order to be successful, helped us not only kind of change the name, but also be thoughtful about the way we presented content. So when they get feedback on incorrect answers in that readiness check, it's much more robust. It actually leads them to additional material where they can get the information that they need to bolster their knowledge before they go in. So it serves as its own little mini lesson to make sure that we're not having students get lost or feel discouraged by the fact that they might not have the same set of skills or knowledge coming into a particular course that their counterparts do. We had over 170 students engaged in user testing center research with us. It was particularly rewarding to have our interns talk about that now they were excited about maybe pursuing a career in user testing or in doing research. And so it kind of opened up another world to them too about how courseware is developed and that there are real people trying to solve real problems behind the things that they're using in their classes today. And I think that really did improve our experience in the pilot period. We definitely still had hiccups. We had things that we learned from students that weren't that were worked better than other things, but it allowed us to at least go in and even have conversations with those pilot institutions to talk about a degree of kind of scrutiny and a degree of attention to the material before they were using it in a pilot environment that built their confidence to be able to say yes to us. This episode of The Key is brought to you by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, working to ensure that race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status are no longer predictors of educational success. Learn more about the Foundation's work to improve digital teaching and learning, advance institutional transformation, and more at usprogram.gatesfoundation.org. You're listening to The Key Podcast, and today we're talking with Ariel Anbar, of Arizona State University and Jeanette Koskinas of Lumen Learning. Ariel, can you share a little bit about some of the learnings from the early stages of your work? In terms of our projects, we, we do get a lot of student feedback from the fact that we are faculty and we work with students a lot. Um, and everything Jeanette said is absolutely right. And and this project has, you know, what it's, what it's led us to do is we created an equity team that's which has brought in some expertise into our project that that we don't normally have in our teaching around specifically 
some of these inclusive and equity issues. And I've learned tremendously from that. And I'm not just saying that because it's fashionable to say I've learned from this. It's been really one of the joys of my career has been working with Rod Roscoe, who's our equity team lead, um, who is an expert in user interface design, but very much through an equity lens. And he's on the faculty at ASU at ASU Poly and has, has become my mentor in this whole space. So this project has really catalyzed a lot of great learning. But I want to take, take it in a slightly different direction. You asked us what, what we learned. So instead of from the students, we've learned a lot. I learned a lot from the faculty partners who we worked with. So we are building in part on uh, work that the OLI team has done for years now, California Learning Labs project, um, with a, a number of faculty at a number of institutions in California, community colleges mostly, but not exclusively, using the existing legacy OLI Gen Chem courseware to try to understand where the issues are and where the challenges are. So we had this, we came into this project with a group of faculty who we could kind of learn from. I came into this project in particular with some pretty radical ideas of what I wanted to do with curriculum. You know, like I wanted to teach Gen Chem through the lens of the real world problems, right? Let's put those challenges first and foremost, and let's hook the Gen Chem to that. And, and I, think, I think, frankly, that's the most compelling way to teach any science, right? But here's the problem with GenChem, which we learned from the faculty. We presented this vision that we thought is pretty cool of teaching through exploration of these real-world problems that, that have GenChem in them. The challenge is that all those real-world problems have things other than GenChem in them, too. And there's no way to seriously engage those topics without getting the students at least somewhat familiar uh, with some of the surrounding content. Like policy or even adjacent sciences, adjacent right? sciences, got it. But also, but also policy and other things like you know, you want to do a lesson about uh, why is it so hard to change alternative energy? Well, there's chemistry in there, but the real world challenge is not just the chemistry; it's a whole bunch of policy and sociology and, and all this stuff, right? And so, you want to treat that problem as like a real problem and get the students engaged with it in a real way. You're right away starting off with not the chemistry. Right. Yeah, and having to eat up too much of the curriculum. On well, there you go. You wouldn't there? Yeah. You go. So the, the, the sure. pushback, the pushback we got from the faculty is, this sounds great, but here's my syllabus. What should I take out? And I have ideas of what you should take out. But then the response is, especially from community colleges, and I'm not to be grudging this. This is just the nature of the wicked systems problem. Is yeah, but I, I have an articulation agreement with the four-year universities. I can't change this syllabus. It's even deeper than that. Forget about the real-world relevance. One could argue that the that the existing Gen Chem syllabus is not the best syllabus anymore, right? The, the, those learning outcomes and those articulation agreements, these are old. It's not doesn't necessarily well serve the students who are going to those non-chemistry but STEM careers, but the, it's locked in. It's locked in through agreements, it's locked in through tradition, it's locked in for a whole bunch of reasons. That if if our goal from the foundation is widespread adoption as quickly as possible, which, as you know, the Gates Foundation always wants to see, and rightly so, I get it, right? They want impact. Well, if we're going to build something that's going to be widely adopted, it can't be too radical. Because if it is too radical, then you have an adoption challenge. You know, I always knew this was an issue, but I it's like become very stark through this project. And figuring out the middle path through that is very, is I mean, it's fun, but it's very challenging. So the real world approach was designed to particularly address that relevance issue, I'm guessing, that you were uh, yeah. the relevance piece. So do, what's the other w way you've chosen or been able to so, do to get to that, to crack so that we, problem? So we've developed a design that will allow us to evolve the curriculum over time. We have a, a multi-part curricular structure. There's a what we call the foundation material, which is the work you do pre-class, which is fairly traditional in its curricular alignment. 
Um, it's evolved from the, the historic OLI stuff. It's pretty quite successful, a lot of learn by doing activities and, and such aligned with OpenStax, which is important to the foundation and important to a lot of adopters. So it's, it, you know, from a curricular content standpoint, no one can argue that it's not at least following the mainstream, right? Based on the foundation material, there are analytics that then will recommend to the faculty uh, what they should do in class. This is a blended learning product, keep in mind. That's what the foundation wanted, right? So there is, it's not massive student to faculty ratio. So the the idea is you get data on what the students should be doing in class. Then we have activities that we that we set up that we, we're learning from our partners what the best activities would be. And then there's what we call deliberate practice. So instead of a typical, you know, very automated homework system, what we realize is, especially if we're dealing with blended environments and situations where it's not impossible to coax the faculty to understand what each student needs at some level. What we want is to, and we're designing, building is system that enables um that alerts the faculty to what individual students need more work with, and then gives the faculty deliberate practice suggestions to assign to those students, right? So one of the things we want to do is we want to encourage the faculty to be paying attention to the students and make it easy for this, this faculty to do things that are individualized for individual students. So the students see that the faculty actually are there and care, right? Which is a huge issue, especially once you go digital, right? And especially once you go digital with homework systems. I mean, the systems are notorious for you know, br brutally grinding the students' motivations out of them, right? Because they just feel they're being mindlessly, robotically led along. So we want the faculty in the loop there with this deliberate practice component. In addition to that, there behind all that, there is a layer that we've created called the exploration layer. The exploration layer is a series of, eventually, a, ideally, a large matrix of narrative-driven, simulation-rich, some of maybe virtual field trip-rich down the road um, uh, experiences that bring that real-world relevance in a really forward way. We're putting real world relevance into the foundation material also, but that, that's, that's, that's kind of icing on a cake that is very traditional in terms of its curricular content. But the exploration layer is where you know, the idea is you go through foundation material and as you demonstrate proficiency and key learning outcomes, a bit like the, the readiness check in a way that, 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 that we just heard about, as you demonstrate proficiency and key learning outcomes, you are now invited to then go and do one of these explorations, which is an opportunity for you to practice your skills that you have learned you've hopefully mastered in a contextualized way. So the, this exploration layer originally, my original vision, our original vision, mine and Norman was, let's put that front and center as a motivational piece and build a whole course around that. And the pushback we got from the faculty was that's too different. That's, and that's too much. So instead we reconfigure that to be a, an extra opportunity for skills practice once you've demonstrated proficiency and an opportunity for the student to learn how to transfer their abstract knowledge into a real world context. Because one of the things you hear from employers is you find out that suddenly in context, the student has no idea how to apply something that you know they've learned, but they don't know how to see it in a context. So, so giving the students an opportunity to practice that in the course is part of what this exploration layer has become. So my vision, right, you ask over time. So over time, as we build up a library of these explorations, my vision is we'll be able to then eventually offer a version of the course that is exploration forward for those who want to try that because we'll have built this library of really cool learn by doing in a real world context, case study type material. My hope is that we'll have some faculty saying this, hey, why couldn't we build a version of this course that actually puts that forward and puts the traditional chemistry as supplementary and you bring it in when you need it. And I'll say, great idea, let's do that. But we need to be in the market <laughs> first, right? Jeanette, is, is Lumen also wrestling with that blend of practical relevance and requisite content in the statistics realm? 
We have a similar issue a little bit with those real world examples. There's lots of great real world examples where we're asking students to dive in and understand statistics around, you know, plastic pollution or around voting demographics um, that open up all sorts of other conversations that could happen in a classroom. So what are we doing to also support instructors to make sure that we're, you know, enabling them to have the best conversation possible about the the goals of their course and the learning outcomes that are critical for introductory statistics, while at the same time, helping to thread that concept that statistics is all around us, that you are consuming this on a daily basis, and that real-world examples help you to see those patterns and, and understand what you're consuming in a different way. Um, but we also have a an apply it section within our study guides, um, our study plans of the learning modules that is designed to do exactly that, really bring in that that active learning, that applied um, concept. Because I think for a lot of students, too, in these gateway courses, they can get very used to, I need to understand a fact. And if I understand a fact, then I can answer a question correctly on my test. And then I do well on the course and life is good. Or I need to apply a formula. And as long as I know which formula to apply, I am able to be successful. And so that synthesis, right, bringing together different concepts and being able to then execute on an active applied exercise is something that if we don't provide for them or help instructors to provide for them in the classroom, you know, that's a real miss as they continue to work through their college curriculum and find that more and more the courses are going to ask for that degree of synthesis and understanding. Ariel, did you want to add something here? I just wanted to pick up on the active learning point, uh, which we haven't really talked about all that much. And I think this is true of both projects. We've woven active learning throughout, right? That foundation material, you know, it's not e-text. This is really important. It's not just text you read. We don't, we have, we're putting in some really gorgeous videos. Uh, the foundation brought in Outlier as a partner. So we have, which we're using in a very appropriate way for that sort of modality. But fundamentally, the way students learn here is through lots of learn by doing activities, even in that foundational sort of traditional curricular component. But then, as, as Janelle said, there's this, there's this other type of, act, of active learning, which is this kind of synthesis and learning in context and learning how to, not just how to solve a problem in an active way, but how do you actually reason using this body of knowledge that you're learning about and apply it in some way that is um, a bit more a bit more metacognitive, right? It's one thing to understand a balance of chemical reaction. It's another thing to be in a real world kind of context where you realize, oh, I need to balance a chemical reaction here in order to answer this question that is important to me. And that's that's much harder and it's much more synthetic and it's emergent um, and requires a different kind of active learning. So we, we've woven all that kind of stuff through the, through, the, through the project. I want to close by talking about the faculty. A lot of faculty members probably want to experiment and try new things, but they're often boxed in by curricular requirements, as we discussed before, and they're not necessarily rewarded for experimenting with new teaching methods. Are the professors you're working with excited about teaching in a new way? Almost all faculty want to teach better if they can. I mean, it's pretty hard to find a faculty where you sit down and say, hey, do you want your students to do better? Do you want to do, are you happy with the, the you know, you get an honest conversation, right, over beer or whatever. Are you, are you, are you happy with the teaching modality? And they'll go on expansively about the problems with the way we teach, right? The trick is to create the opportunity. When it's done well, 
the the active learning revolution and the digital learning revolution that's gone on opens the door to rethink and sometimes to rethink yep. better. But of course, that's not always the way it works out. Sometimes you end up with with bad experiments that then send people running back running back to their traditional approaches, right? Because at least that worked, right? You do some active learning thing that's not well done for whatever reason, right? And it's like this I'm doing worse than before, and this was harder, and I, I'll just go back to my lecture, right? Or you give them a right. digital thing that sounds great on paper, but doesn't actually motivate the students, or or, or worse, it works well to liberate the faculty from having to worry so much. <laughs> so it benefits the faculty in some ways, but doesn't actually benefit the learning in a deep way. And now you've actually separated the faculty from the students more. The reality is most faculty, and this is another tension, right? On the one hand, we want to create best of breed courseware. And we don't want everybody wildcatting doing their own thing, right? Because we know that leads to a lot of bad stuff because people are experimenting, they aren't trained, whatever, right? But at the same time, we also know that most faculty are not interested in adopting something off the shelf that somebody else created, just here's the way it is, right? So we want in courseware to enable in a templated structured way for faculty to be able to bring their own passion, their own interest, their own perspective, which they all want to do. If you have the tools to make it easy to do that, then you will get a lot of faculty doing great stuff and you will make it easier for them to come in and, and engage their students as, instead of having the, the digital be something that, that makes them more remote. That was Arizona State University's Ariel Anbar, who was joined in today's episode of The Key by Jeanette Koskinas of Lumen Learning. They were representing the coalitions of institutions, nonprofit groups, and companies that are teaming up to try to crack the thorny problem of gateway courses that sometimes deter students from pursuing their educational goals, not because they aren't capable of doing the work, but because the classes aren't designed with them in mind. One of the most heartening things about these projects is a way they're pulling smart people and committed organizations together to try to attack a wicked problem in higher education, trying to overcome the siloing that often has individual institutions and departments within institutions addressing complex issues on their own. The last episode of The Key, which focused on the similarly persistent dilemma of student transfer, explored how state systems and other organizations are similarly collaborating. And I'd love to call out other good examples of that sort of work in future episodes of The Key. Please reach out to me with suggestions. You can reach me at doug.letterman at insidehighered.com or on numerous social media platforms with your ideas. That's all for this episode of The Key. We'll be back soon with our next episode, our 100th. I'm Doug Letterman, and until then, stay well and stay safe. <laughs>